Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What do you know about the King James Version? Is it an accurate translation? Does it have flaws? Should you use it as a measuring stick for other translations? In today's episode, we'll cover the making of the King James Version of the Bible, going all the way back to William Tyndale's courageous work before delving into evaluating it based on four areas. We'll examine the King James Version's manuscript base, its translation accuracy, its lexicography, and last of all, its vocabulary in an effort to objectively decide how the King James Version compares to other English versions. Here now is episode 345, part 16 of our Bible class, Evaluating the King James Version. Today, I want to evaluate the King James Version, and then next time, take a look at the Message Bible. The reason why I picked these two, I mean, maybe you might be asking yourself, well, why the King James and the Message? Well, they occupy the fringes. The King James Version is a very literal translation, and it still has an amazing staying power to influence Bible purchasers and Bible students of all, of all different types. Uh, the message also has sold millions of copies, and it is really the exact opposite style of the King James. Whereas the King James uses archaic, very difficult English, the Message Bible uses uh, modern English idioms, uh, even figures of speech that aren't in the Bible that they will translate biblical terms and phrases into. So I thought by looking at these two extremes, it might help us to uh, observe some key features that will help us understand how we got the Bible and especially evaluating other translations as well. So the message is one that we're going to hold for next time, but for right now, we're going to focus on the King James Version. So here's our plan for today. We're going to start by looking at the making of the King James Version. Then we're going to look at four factors related to it. Manuscript base, translation, lexicography, and vocabulary. And each one of these four is going to be an opportunity to evaluate how the King James Version did in that particular category. Notwithstanding earlier attempts to bring the Bible into English by Bede in the 8th century or Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, uh, or so many people call him Wycliffe in the 14th century, really the story of the King James Version begins with just this incredible, masterful linguist named William Tyndale in the 16th century. Now, he was motivated by a desire to bring the Bible into the English language so that even the plowboy could be able to read it. That was his stated purpose in translating what became known as the Tyndale Bible. Like I said, he was a linguist. He lived in England, so he knew English, but he also knew German, French, Spanish, Italian, Latin, Greek. And then in his 40s, he studied and learned Hebrew well enough to translate a big portion of the Old Testament. He completed the New Testament in the year 1526 using Erasmus's printed Greek New Testament. We had referred to that in an earlier episode of this class. And then he revised his New Testament, re-released it in the year 1534, began work on the Old Testament, but then was betrayed by some cronies sent there by the King of England who arrested him and then executed him for his dastardly crime of translating the Bible into English. 
and he was burned at the stake in the year 1536. A true hero of English Bible translation, a uh, man deserving of our respect. In fact, you know, to be honest, I don't know anybody that criticizes Tyndale. You know, everybody just loves him, thinks he did a great job for his time. Allegedly, his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, specifically so that he would allow English translations. And that, in fact, is what happened. Tyndale's translation had a massive impact on later English versions, and later translations more or less just copied Tyndale and maybe made a few changes or vocabulary differences, but they basically always had an eye on Tyndale as they made their versions up until and including the King James Version. Tyndale coined a whole bunch of phrases and words that we find even to this day. For example, atonement. He just made up that word. Uh, the, the idea of bringing two together to make them, them at one atonement. Scapegoat is another term he invented. Passover, the idea of passing over based on the Exodus account. Let's, I think, give Tyndale the credit that he's due as the starting point for what eventually became known as the King James Version, but also realize that a lot of other people were involved in the process. So let me show you a little timeline slide of English versions starting with Tyndale. First of all, we have his version in 1526 and 1534. He did two editions of the New Testament, but his Old Testament he was not able to complete. 1535, Miles Coverdale produced his Bible, which was basically Tyndale's with some added in parts from other versions that uh, he added in. In 1537, the Matthew Bible came out. In 1539, the Great Bible came out. And then in 1560, in a different place, the Geneva Bible came out, Geneva, Switzerland. So the Geneva Bible is really different than this other line of uh, revisions. I mean, you have Tyndale, and it leads directly to Coverdale, leads directly to the Matthew Bible, leads directly to the Great Bible. The Geneva Bible is really its own thing, and it was translated by Calvinists, and it had lots of study notes in it. And then in 1568, we had the Bishop's Bible, and then 1610, the Douay Rheims Bible. The Douay Rheims Bible is not part of the Tyndale tradition either. That is the version that the Catholics put out of the Latin Vulgate. So it's not a translation from the Hebrew and the Greek, it's a translation from the Latin into English. So it does kind of stand off to the side as well. But then after the 1568 Bishop's Bible, there were some more revisions in there. But then eventually in 1611, we have the King James Version. So what, what is my point in showing you all this? My point is that the King James Version is not some magical translation that came out of nowhere. It was a revision of the Bishop's Bible, which was a revision of the Great Bible, which was a revision of the Matthew Bible, and so on, going back to Tyndale. Furthermore, we don't stop there either. After the 1611 King James Version, there was a revision in 1769. But like last episode, we talked about the NIV, the 1984 NIV, the 2011 NIV. Well, you have the 1611 King James Version and the 1769 King James Version. Same name. It doesn't say update anywhere. It just says King James Version. In fact, most people think when they're reading the 1769 that they're reading the 1611 but they're not. So that was the first revision. In 1881, we got the Revised Version. In 1901, the American Standard Version. 1952, the Revised Standard Version. In 1971, the New American Standard Bible. 
1982, the New King James Version. In 1989, the New Revised Standard Version. 1995, the New American Standard Bible updated. In 2001, the English Standard Version, which was updated subsequently to that. And then the 2017, they planned a new update edition of the NRSV that was announced. Who knows when that'll come out. And then allegedly in 2021, we'll see um, the NASB, according to the Lockman Foundation, is planning on releasing an update to that version as well. So why, why am I showing you this? I'm showing you this because the King James is one version that was actually a revision of previous versions that has subsequently been revised many times as well. It's just, it's just one version in the midst of a spectrum of versions in the English language that has come along throughout the years. Why is that significant? Well, it shows you that the King James Version isn't you know, on a different level than these other versions that came before or after it even though it is usually singled out as the one true Bible by some people today. So, now why did King James, I mean, you notice most of these Bibles aren't named after kings, right? So why is it called the King James Version? Why did King James authorize a new version? He had the Bible in English, the Bishop's Bible. Why did he authorize a new version? Well, here's what happened. Here's the, the inside scoop. The Geneva Bible, which was the Bible that had all these Calvinist marginal notes, had certain marginal notes and footnotes that the king did not like. Okay, and I'm going to show you what those were. In Exodus 1.19 in the Geneva Bible, which, was came, which came out in uh, 1560, when the Egyptian midwives disobey Pharaoh's order, it says, quote, their disobedience herein was lawful. So in other words, the Geneva Bible is endorsing the lying behavior of the midwives over against the king, Pharaoh. Well, King James didn't like that because he thought maybe his subjects would then lie to, against him and use the Bible as a warrant for that. Secondly, in 2 Kings 9.33, when Jehu has Queen Jezebel thrown out of the window, it calls, the Geneva Bible calls it, quote, a spectacle and example of God's judgment to all tyrants. Well, once again, royal people don't want to see royal people getting thrown out of windows and then the Bible note saying, you know, good on them. They did the right thing there. And then a third example comes from 2 Chronicles 15, 16, when King Asa deposed his mother for idolatry. The Geneva Bible reads, herein he showed that he lacked zeal, for she ought to have died. So the Geneva Bible is counseling, executing the, the royal person there rather than doing what he actually did, which was deposing her. So King James himself said the Geneva Bible was, quote, very partial, untrue, seditious, and savoring too much of dangerous and traitorous conceits. Whew. And uh, so he authorized a new translation, and his new translation was very much to compete with the Geneva Bible so that English-speaking people, at least in his country, would not have these traitorous marginal notes in their version. So the King James Version was supposed to have no notes other than what was advisable if there's like a Hebrew or a Greek word that's unsure and they might want to give you a little bit more information on it, but no study notes in the version are allowed. So what he did, what he did was he organized 54 scholars and uh, he called it the authorized version. Why is it called the authorized version? Because the Geneva Bible is the unauthorized version and you're not supposed to use it if you're in England. And certainly if you're in the Church of England, 
you're not going to be able to read an unauthorized version. You have to read the authorized version, which is also called the AV, or abbreviated as the KJV many times today too. So let's look at the translation process. This is a little quote from Philip Comfort. He writes, The translation went through several committees before it was finalized. The scholars were instructed to follow the Bishop's Bible as the basic version, as long as it adhered to the original text, and to consult the translations of Tyndale, Matthew, and Coverdale, as well as the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible, when they appeared to contain more accurate readings of the original languages. So the King James Version is indebted to earlier English translations and about 60% of its text. Ironically, it's especially indebted to the Geneva Bible, <laughs> which is competing with, as well as Tyndale's original Bible as well. So this translation was done in the year 15, or 1611. It was completed, and it was a masterpiece. Here's what J.H. Skilton said about it. The AV gathered to itself the virtues of the long and brilliant line of English Bible translations. It united high scholarship with Christian devotion and piety. It came into being at a time when the English language was vigorous and young, and its scholars had a remarkable mastery of the instrument which providence had prepared for them. Their version has justifiably been called the noblest monuments of English prose. Here's what Philip Comfort said about that. Indeed, the King James Version has become an enduring monument of English prose because of its gracious style, majestic language, and poetic rhythms. No other book has had such a tremendous influence on English literature, and no other translation has touched the lives of so many English-speaking people for centuries and centuries, even until the present day. Ironically, when the King James Version came out, it did face harsh criticism. You would think, oh no, everyone would fully accept it right away. Well, not for the first 80 years or so. It was strongly criticized. Here is what Luther Weigel wrote. For 80 years after its publication in 1611, the King James Version endured bitter attacks. It was denounced as theologically unsound, ecclesiastically biased, as truckling to the king, unduly deferring to his belief in witchcraft, as untrue to the Hebrew text, as relying too much on the Septuagint, the personal integrity of the translators was impugned. Among other things, they were accused of blasphemy, most damnable corruptions, intolerant deceit, and vile imposture. Bible translations are generally not accepted when they're first out. <laughs> they're generally criticized. There are some problems with the King James Version, and I want to cover four of them with you, starting with the manuscript base. Do you remember the verse I mentioned a few weeks ago? to see if a translation depended on Erasmus's faulty Greek New Testament. Do you remember that? It was in Revelation chapter 22, verse 19. The King James Version of it reads, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Uh, I had mentioned to you that this translation here, book of life, is actually a result of Erasmus not having a Greek manuscript for the last page of the book of Revelation. And so he back-translated from Latin into Greek, and the Latin had a corruption, reading it as Book of Life. The Greek manuscripts read Tree of Life. So the RSV, for example, says uh, God will take away his share in the Tree of Life and in the Holy City and so on. So. Uh, the King James has this corruption in it in Revelation chapter 22. It also has the corruption I mentioned in episode 11 
of 1 John 5, 7, adding in a Trinitarian formula that's not there in any of the oldest manuscripts, as well as the corruption in 1 Timothy 3, 16, where it says God was manifest in the flesh rather than who was manifest in the flesh. But more than that, the, 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 the simple fact of the matter is the King James Version translators, although being top-notch scholars and having a decent handle on most things, just didn't have access to the oldest manuscripts. Way back when we did our manuscript lectures, we looked at this slide here. And in this slide, I put a column that says, Available to the West. And this is, this is really important for us right now because this really tells us when we had access to these different Masoretic texts, these different Hebrew texts of the Old Testament. The Cairo Codex, we didn't have access to until the year 1983. Petersburg, 1839. The London Codex, 1891. The Aleppo Codex, which is considered to be the most accurate on the planet of the Masoretic tradition, 1958. The uh, University of Michigan Torah, 1922. Damascus Pentateuch, 1975. The Leningrad Codex, which most translations are based on, 1863. Uh, the University of Bologna scroll is not till 2013. Uh, so all they had available was the Mikraot Gedalot, which was a very late rabbinic Bible. Furthermore, if we look at even older Hebrew manuscripts, none of these were discovered at the time the King James Version was done. The Ketef Hanam Silver Scroll wasn't discovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls weren't discovered till the middle of the 20th century. Uh, the Nash Papyrus wasn't discovered till the 20th. The Engedi Scroll wasn't deciphered till the year 2016. The Cairo Geniza fragments weren't discovered until the 1800s. So in the year 1611, these things just simply aren't available. Furthermore, when it comes to the Greek manuscript base for the King James Version, they don't have any papyri. They have, uh, I think, basically two unseals out of over 300 that we have today. They have lots of minuscules and lectionaries, maybe not lots, but a, a couple dozen minuscules and lectionaries, and they do have the church fathers. But here's the problem. We've got over 100, something like 130 papyri and over 320 unseals, and these earliest groupings of texts weren't discovered until the 19th and 20th centuries, especially in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, and then later on in other parts of Egypt. So what are we saying? We're saying that the King James Version just didn't have the access to the oldest and best manuscripts available, so their translation, even if it's perfectly accurate, has flaws in it because the manuscripts from which they translated were late medieval minuscules. And so the King James actually has a bunch of verses that aren't in the oldest manuscripts. So we have about 16 verses from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans that the King James Version has that the earliest Greek just doesn't have at all. And uh, so most of your modern versions are going to uh, do, do kind of like a funny thing. They're going to skip the verse, and people will see a skipped verse. Like, for example, Matthew 17, 21. You go look at it, and it's not there, or it's empty. And it goes from 20 to 22 in your version. You're like, oh my gosh, there's a printing error. No, it's not a printing error. What happened is the, the, the versification was done on these medieval-style uh, manuscripts that had this verse in it. And then when we discovered the older manuscripts, the verse system was already done. So what are you going to do? Well, they, they removed it, but then they left verse 22 to be verse 22, so it goes from 20 to 22. Uh, and I know that 
might be confusing, but that's what's going on behind the scenes. Furthermore, the King James Version has John 7:53 to 8:11 and Mark 16:9 through 20, which is another 24 verses extra. So there's a total of 40 added verses in the King James Version that are not found in the oldest and best uh, Hebrew and Greek manuscripts that we have available. How did they do as translators? Well, first of all, they used formal equivalence. I, I told a, a couple of episodes ago the difference between formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Formal is word for word, dynamic is thought for thought. So the King James Version is very much a formal equivalence translation. Let me show you an example from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. It reads, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. That sentence right there in English is an inverted sentence, whether you realize it or not. Uh, what, they, what the translators did is they, they followed as precisely as possible the Greek. The nominative case, which is the subject of the sentence, is at the end of it. And so when you translate it into English, you want to make this come way up here towards the front of the sentence. And that's in fact what the NASB does. This says the manifold wisdom of God right here. So that's where the manifold wisdom of God comes out front in the NASB, but you can see it's, it's out back in the King James Version. Well, why do they do that? Because they're trying to stick to the arrangement of words in the original, even though it produces an English sentence that's actually backwards. So you read the whole sentence and then you get the subject of the sentence at the very end. Um, and so that's what we would call strict formal equivalence. And uh, yet, the King James Version, just like all versions, had, had mistakes in it too. For example, in 1 Timothy 6.10, I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase that money is the root of all evil. That's a King James Version mistranslation. The Greek does not say the root. It says a root. That's a big difference. If you're a root, there are other roots too. If you are the root, then you're the absolute root of all evil. Right? And uh, so that's, that's interesting. The Ephesians 2.1 in the King James Version reads, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The Greek does not have the words, hath he quickened. They added in. And the, you know, the King James doesn't make any bones about it. They italicize words that are added in. You don't have to guess about it. They knew it was added in. The question is, why did they add it in? Why add in these words, you hath he quickened, you hath, have he made alive, right? Why did he do, do that? Maybe they thought it was too depressing. If you read the first few verses of Ephesians 2, it's all about being dead in trespasses and sins and walking according to the course of this spirit of the air and you know the disobedience, children of wrath, all this. And maybe they felt that you need a little advanced warning that you know, you're going to be made alive in just a few verses here, buddy. Just hang in there. I don't know. I'm just totally guessing. But they added in a whole phrase that is not there in the Greek that, in their Greek, that they had available to them. I'm not talking about a Greek difference. This is a translation error difference. Uh, or then Matthew 23, 24. Have you ever heard anyone say, strain at a gnat? Strain at a gnat. Not strain out. Strain at a gnat. Uh, that's a King James mistranslation. Uh, you don't strain at things. If you're using a strainer, you strain out things. Uh, and it's just an error in the King James Version that was corrected in the New King James Version in the 1980s. All right, on to the next point, which is lexicography. That's a big fancy word for uh, original languages. Let me uh, show you what Robert Alter 
wrote about the King James Version's lexicography. He said, the 17th century translators, for all their learnings, that he's giving them a compliment. By the way, Robert Alter loves the King James Version. He thinks it's great, but it's not perfect, okay? So he, he goes on, he says, for all their learning, had a rather imperfect grasp of biblical Hebrew. At times they get confused about syntax, they repeatedly miss the nuance, or even the actual meaning of Hebrew words. Usually this is a matter of being slightly off or somewhat misleading as when following the Vulgate they transpose concrete Hebrew terms into theologically fraught ones. For example, soul for nephesh, which actually means essential self being life breath, or salvation for Yeshua, which means rescue, getting out of a tight fix. Sometimes, alas, there are real howlers. Such errors are probably understandable because Hebrew was a book language for them cultivated for barely a century by Christian humanists. So let me show you an example of where the King James Version translators just misunderstood a Hebrew word. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19 says, And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed everyone to his house. Whereas the ESV, along with essentially all recent versions, reads, instead of a flagon of wine there, a cake of raisins. It's not the word for wine, it's the word for raisins. They translated the Hebrew phrase, son of the morning, in Isaiah 14, 12. It says in Hebrew, son of the morning. They translated it as a name, Lucifer. And this has spawned TV shows, movies, books, all calling the name of the devil Lucifer, which is just a mis... It's kind of embarrassing, but it's a mistranslation of the King James Version that has been corrected in all subsequent versions as well. One more example of lexicography where they just mistranslate a word or just get it wrong. Over and over again, they will use the word world for the word age. Where the, where the Greek says aeon is the word age, the King James will translate the word world. So we get this phrase in, in the English language, the end of the world. Right? And it really plays into people's views of the end times when they think the world, the planet's going to get destroyed or something. Which is really, in the original Greek, it's the end of the age. It's not the end of the world. Uh, it's a very different kind of thing, don't you think? So there are some of these issues where, I mean, think about it. We've had, what, 400 years to discover ancient texts, to do archaeology, to develop and expand our Hebrew lexicons, our Greek lexicons, we have a much better grasp of these ancient languages 400 years later than they had in the year 1611. And it's not the sort of thing that's like getting, making a huge difference. It's a slow, steady kind of a, a creep upwards towards a better understanding of these things year by year. Uh, all right, on to the next point, which is vocabulary. The vocabulary of the King James Version is usually the first thing people notice about it. All the these and the thous and the antiquated, archaic English. So let me show you in Luke 17, verse 9, a good example of this. Now, I'm going to quote to you first from the 1611 version, which says, Doeth he thank ye that seruant, because he, with two e's, did the things that were commanded him, I trow not. All right, I, obviously I was, I was being excessively emphatic there in how I pronounce these things. Uh, but the 1769 version cleaned up the spelling and said, Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him, I trow not. 
Question. What does tro mean? Do you know? Tro is, tro is a tricky one. It's a real tricky one because even if you read the King James Version cover to cover, whether the 1611, which most people have never encountered, or the 1769 edition, you're never going to see the word tro any other place. This is the only place it's used in the whole Bible, so good luck trying to figure out what it means. Uh, so this is the sort of thing we're talking about. They used words that no longer mean today what they meant back then, or are just simply like this one, not used at all anymore. Let me give you another example. Philippians 3.21 talks about how um, Christ is going to change our vile body to be like His glorious resurrected body. The word vile today means disgusting. The word vile in the 1600s, it meant something that's humble. That's a big difference, right? Or how about 2 Timothy 2.15 where it says, Study to show thyself approved to God, a workman. Uh, well, in Old English, the word study meant to be zealous for. It didn't mean to like, study in the sense of like book learning. It meant to be diligent, which is why most modern translations will, will translate it, be dil diligent or be zealous for and that sort of thing. Here's a, a, a number of other examples here. Mean man was a term that in 1611 meant a common man, your average guy, whereas today a mean man is a cruel man. In the old days, meat meant any kind of food, but now it means flesh. Peculiar meant that which belongs to one person. Today, peculiar just means strange or weird. To prevent used to mean to come before, but now it means to hinder. To knit was to let down, whereas today to knit means to weave. A carriage was something carried. Today, it's a horse-drawn vehicle. So these are a number of these archaisms that Make it so that when you're reading the King James Version in the 21st century, you, you don't even realize you're, you're just getting it wrong. Unless you've been educated on Old English, how Old English works, you really can't just pick it up and be like, oh, I, I get this, this makes perfect sense. You're going you're gonna to understand a lot of it, but there's going to also be a number of phrases and words in there where you think you're going to know what that word means, and it really means something different than what you think. Uh, so in conclusion, let me give you some concluding remarks about the King James Version. The King James Version was an excellent masterpiece of English literature that, considering the scholarship and the manuscripts available, did the best job they could in the year 1611. However, it does have some problems with it. Number one, the manuscript base is late and it has too few uh, manuscripts in it. Number two, the translators occasionally made mistakes. Number three, their knowledge of Hebrew and Greek were not nearly as good as ours is today. And number four, the English language itself has changed so drastically in the last 400 years that it's impossible to read the King James Version and not misunderstand it unless you have training in Old English. And most of us have maybe a little Shakespeare from high school or something, but it's I can tell you it's probably not enough. Um, and this is why the King James Version was update, updated in, 1985, or in 1885, in 1901, in 1952, in 1989, and so on through the years. So next time we'll take our focus from the King James Version to the Message Bible as well as the Passion Translation in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. Come on to restitutio.org or check in your show notes to get a nice list of books related to Bible translation in general and the King James Version in particular for those of you interested in further research on this topic. 
Also, come on and uh, tell me about your King James experience. Did you grow up with the King James like I did? Uh, did you think it wasn't really difficult to read like I also did growing up because I was so used to it? Or, or was the King James Version a major turnoff for you? Did you grow up with the NIV? What, what has been your experience with the King James and the, and the new King James? I remember I, one day I got a, a little pocket New Testament, New King James from the Gideons, a little green Bible, and I just love that little Bible. Uh, it's just so easy to read compared to the old King James, and I uh, was really surprised to discover that the new King James didn't update the manuscripts they used for translation. They just basically updated the language of the old King James, leaving in all the corruptions and mistakes that were in there. So that was a little disappointing, but uh, I'll be curious to hear what your thoughts are. Come on to restitudio.org, find episode 345, Evaluating the King James Version, and let me know your thoughts. Also, I wanted to read out a comment from episode 342, which was Bible Translation Philosophies by Jared Gaston, who writes, Hey, Sean, you showed some concern in episode 342 about possibly losing some regular listeners to the manuscript lectures. <laughs> Maybe this isn't the norm, but I actually hopped on for those lectures, and now I'm seeing all the other fascinating subjects you have on Restitutio. I've learned a lot so far and look forward to future episodes. Well, my friend Jared, uh, that you are I don't think you are necessarily the standard case, but I'm glad to hear that this was the hook that got you interested in exploring further. As we have seen over the last couple of episodes, although the manuscript material may seem dry to some people, it's absolutely critical to understand if you're going to evaluate English Bibles and whether or not they're accurate, what are, what are the manuscripts are translated from? What are the ages of those manuscripts? What is the character and quality of those manuscripts in order to make competent decisions on what Bibles are more accurate? And ultimately, that's the goal, right? Ultimately, the goal is to, over time, achieve more accuracy, not let, not less accuracy, so that we can understand uh, this collection of documents that we call the Bible, and we can be shaped by them and then live them out in our lives. I mean, that's really the end goal here. So thanks for writing in and appreciate uh, the kind words. Likewise, Kenny Willenberg wrote in on episode 341, Two Uncorrected Corruptions. That's where I talked about the long ending on Mark and John chapter 8, The Adulterous Woman. He said, thanks for putting this series together. While it's a bit of dry material sometimes, I am thoroughly enjoying it. I had a general knowledge of much of what you have shared. However, you have gone deeper and given me a better and more in-depth understanding of how the Bible manuscripts were compiled into modern translations. As for the topic of knowingly putting known corruptions into a translation because that is what is expected or desired by the general public, I find that to be quite sad. It is an example of following the general culture or tradition instead of being a genuine truth seeker. I think Christians as a whole need to stop being afraid of the truth and learn to embrace it, even if it is uncomfortable and not what they are used to. I love the slogan, the truth has nothing to fear. I think all of us need to make sure we are really okay with truth, whatever it is. Thanks, Sean, for all the work you put into the podcast. Well, thank you, Kenny, for those kind and encouraging words. It's, it's pretty crazy, but to just today, I was watching a webinar of some textual critics, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. I'm not going to name any names, but they're people that are very much looked up to within the field, more up and coming than established. And a Bible translator, a, a guy living in Africa, in Central Africa, 
asked a question about the long ending on Mark. And he said, when I came here as working for the United Bible Societies to help these people produce a translation in their native language, I told them that the United Bible Society recommends putting brackets around the ending of Mark from verses 9 through 20. And the people there were furious with him and said, how can you question Scripture? You're undermining the authority of Scripture and all this. And uh, so he asked the textual critics, and and what they said was, oh, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. And, you know, it's uh, so long as you're not snake handling and drinking poison like in in Appalachia, you're probably going to be fine. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, but I, I, I can't disagree more with that mindset, because look, this is exactly how these things perpetuate generation after generation. The experts know it's not there. And this textual critic very clearly said he doesn't think it's original to the Gospel of Mark. So if you don't think it's there, stop putting it in. And if people get mad at you, tell them they're mad at the wrong person. They're mad at the wrong group of people. Because we are not the ones who are putting things into Scripture that were not written by the biblical authors. That's not us. We're exposing the cover-up that has been going on for all all this different time. In our earliest manuscripts, it's not there. So, look, we're not going to perpetuate it just because it's comfortable, just because it's traditional, just because we like it. And, you know, maybe Jesus even said these words. Nobody's even saying that Jesus didn't say these words necessarily. It's just not Bible, so it doesn't carry with it the whole doctrine of inspiration and authority and all the rest of it that goes into these eyewitness documents, like, for example, the Gospel of Mark. So I just wanted to echo what you said here, Kenny. I I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I I was quite honestly rather appalled at uh, the sort of nonchalant attitude that some people have— with regard to this issue. I think it is important. I, I want to know the truth. I want to know what is Bible, what is not Bible. And then I want to adjust to that reality. I don't want to adjust the Bible to suit to my needs. I don't want to finesse it and twist it and make it just seem so comfortable to me. I'm okay being uncomfortable if I need to change my beliefs, if I need to change my, my lifestyle. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for bringing that up. That's it for today. If you'd like to support Restitutio, come on to restitutio.org where you can make a donation. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.